0: Welcome to the EMS on the Mountain podcast, a show for those interested in austere and wilderness medicine. This podcast provides insight into the unique aspects and challenges of bringing modern EMS into wilderness and austere environments. You suck so hard. Anyway, folks, welcome back to EMS on the Mountain. Uh, Once again, Sean and Mike here to bring you some tidbits and nuggets of knowledge for your backpack of facts. <laughs> <laughs> ah, that's right. You like that, that one? be the worst <laughs> one <point> ever. <laughs> oh, come on. It's funny. I'll never no, use it again. No, you won't. All right. So today on the show, we're going to be talking about um, medical emergencies in the backcountry. No, we're not going to go deep into providing you a protocol or standard of care. We're just going to talk about what are the considerations, again, that you need to have in the back of your mind as you approach these patients, keeping in mind that based on the nature of and wilderness medicine, you're not gonna have an ambulance with a locker and a drug box full of supplies for you. If it's not in your backpack, you don't have it, and you're just gonna have to do what you can. So what do we do with a medical emergency? These are some of the more challenging patients you run into in the wilderness, austere environment. Especially if you're truly remote and you're not functioning in some sort of, you know, a clinic scenario, like out at an oil field or on an offshore oil rig. If you don't have something set up to deal with medical patients and you are truly working out of a backpack, these are the hardest cases. Trauma, trauma is easy, right? You know, if it's bleeding, make it stop. If it's not breathing, breathe for it right? But the medical patients, these are much more difficult to deal with out of the backpack. So a couple of big points, absolutely must have strong patient assessment and history taking skills. If your patient assessment skills are lacking, you're going to have a much more difficult time. If you're just getting into this field and you've been in EMS for a while and you haven't done a blood pressure or done vital signs without a life back or ZOL or any other cardiac monitor with you, you need to get back on that game, right? Because you're not carrying that in the field with you. It's all manual BPs, stethoscopes, doing the actual hands-on patient assessment. And then right with that is your history taking. Uh, This can be a challenge depending on your patient's mental status, but you got to start talking to your patients and you've got to understand and help them. You don't want to guide them, but you want to help them give you the information you need. You don't want to lead your patients into a, a diagnosis that you want it to be because you know you can work on that one but you've got to help them feed you the information you need. So you got to learn to ask the right questions and the right follow-up. I am not a fan of the, so tell me about your chest pain. Is it crushing? Oh yeah, yeah, it's crushing chest pain. Because people are just going to answer that as yes. Um, I often have to counsel some of my young EMT partners with that. It's like, don't tell them what it is. Ask them to describe it. And if they tell me it's sharp and it's stabbing, that's different than a crushing chest pain. Could it still be the heart attack? Certainly. Right? Or could it be something else? So don't put words in your patient's mouth and only give them one answer that you want to hear. So you got to do good history taking. Next one, and this is probably just as important as your assessment and history taking, you got to know your medical pathophysiology. If you don't know the disease process, you're not going to understand what's going on with your patients. And for the BLS providers who listen, you got to get on that game, right? Don't just stop with your 160 hours of EMT school pathophysiology that you learn. You need to be getting the books out, learning more. Uh, There's a boatload of books out there. Um, some are written at a fairly high advanced level. Read up to those points that you understand and then try to start going beyond it and start to learn more. Work with some of the uh, ALS providers that you know. You know, Have them help you learn. Uh, if you don't know the pathophysiologies, your, your field diagnosis could be really, really skewed and you might d- go down a very, very wrong treatment modality. And when you're working in a limited environment, that can cause more complications than 15 minutes in the ambulance and get to the ER and go, Ooh, my bad. And the doc can now fix it. I think the key, the, the key takeaway is as with everything in the backcountry,
1: time is elongated. So, as we make our differential diagnosis and we make a decision in and in a path to go down, uh, if you pick the wrong path and don't have the skill set to recognize the wrong path or make a deviation from the path, best case scenario, we're simply not treating what's actually going on with the patient. Worst case scenario, we're treating a thing that's causing a, a magnification of the problem they're having. We have to be really good at, at sussing out what we believe to be the problem and forming a differential diagnosis and then forming a treatment modality and determining if that's making things better or not and and changing along the way the more you know about the pathophysiology the better you can be at making differential changes or or uh, coming up with a plan B plan C plan D uh, for the patient that you may be with for 3 4 or 5 hours
0: yeah and that's a great point of you first settled on an initial diagnosis of A so you start going to that treatment modality and you provide a couple of interventions that you know should start making things better and if they don't don't be afraid to stop reassess what you've thought you were had going on and then go back and try something different don't keep forcing yourself down you know hypoglycemia for example right if you've given glucose and other sugar boluses it's like well at this point that should have done something for them okay then maybe that isn't the problem let's let's try something different yeah so you you don't be afraid to change your diagnosis i mean i don't think you're ever going to meet a physician out there who is um a textbook, not a textbook, a Hollywood doctor where it's like, uh-huh, I know what this is. It's X. And they go right down it and they've solved the, the mystery and the patient lives. Yeah, they right?
1: usually don't do that until they get a full panel workup and a whole bunch of CT scans and yeah. such.
0: <laughs> well, that's exactly it, right? So that's the advantage physicians have over us in the hospital environment is we bring somebody into the ED and that physician gets a report. And he has somewhere to start from. And because he's in an ED and he's got a hospital at his disposal, it's like, cool, let's pull a full blood panel and uh, let's do some x-rays or some scans. And then he has a bigger picture that he can start working from. And if it turns out what he sees in the numbers and the pictures don't match up with what we thought it was in the field, he can be like, hmm, all right, well, it's, uh, what, what else is, was out there that can cause these things? And then they can move on from there. But like Mike stated, man, when we're three, four, five plus hours, e. And, you know, I don't have a CT machine in my backpack, nor do I think I'd want to carry a portable one. Uh, that might be just a bit too much. You're going to have to just work with what you got. You don't have access to all these things. So that's where, again, knowing your pathophys, doing your good assessments, talking to your patients. That's where it all comes together, and it's where you are going to make the difference. And believe it or not, like,
1: people with gallbladder problems do occur in the backcountry, right? It- Oh, yeah. Funny
0: that, huh? Yeah, kidney stones, gallbladders, liver issues, kidney problems, all that occurs in the woods. Just because people are out hiking and backpacking and everything else outdoors doesn't mean they're healthy, granola-eating, not chain-smoking, whiskey-drinking fools, right? All sorts get out in the woods, and you're going to find the exact same medical issues in the woods as you do anywhere else. Uh, Last little bit off that first segment, you got to know what drugs you're carrying, right? Some places you might have a very, very limited selection of drugs and other places you might have a bit more of a robust package. Uh, Remember, you're carrying it in your backpack. So most of us work with a pretty limited selection. There's not a whole lot I can do for you pre-hospitally in an austere environment with the drugs I carry in my backpack. Probably half of them, I think, really revolve around analgesia. Uh, the other ones are for some, you know, sedation, traditional sedation. You know, we do have antibiotics out there. So if we encounter somebody that's got that, you know, very large open wound, you know, an exposed fracture, we can get antibiotics on early to help prevent some of the infection. And that really is based on the the extended care time. That's not something you see traditionally pre-hospitally. But, you know, what else are you carrying? You have your Benadryl, right, your diphenhydramine. What are some of the things that diphenhydramine can be used for besides just an allergic reaction? Epinephrine. I'm carrying, you know, traditional one to 1,000 epi. Can I make that into a one to 100,000 push dose epi if I needed to? Yep, sure could. I'm only going to get a few doses of, of this. I'm not going to be able to keep somebody's pressure and their heart rate going forever with it, but it's something I have at my disposal. But I got to understand what I'm going to do with it, what what it, I expect to see with my patient. And I got to know how to make a one to 100,000 mix from a one to 1,000 vial. And if you're not familiar with that, or you're not carrying syringes to build it, then that's, that's a drug that's just not going to be as useful nope. to you. So you got to know your drugs. Yep. It's come to think of it, we
1: don't carry bicarb in the backcountry. We haven't had no. any. I, I. It's been a while since I've done like a long-term crush sort of thing, like a rockfall or something. But I've had a few, but I never had bicarb with me. It's just, you know, it's a big amp and it's a big heavy thing to carry. Okay. I just
0: didn't didn't have it. So
1: yeah, you got to kind of make do with what you got.
0: Yeah. And that's the thing is, is yeah, you might run into those situations where you want drug X and you simply don't have it, you know, and that kind of goes back to our discussion on pain management. You may want drug X to take care of something. Yeah. Like a crest injury, you know, somebody was in a fall or tree fell on them, you know, which does happen out in the woods, uh, rock fall, et cetera. And yeah, you have a Somebody that might have some compartment syndrome and some other things going on. And it'd be nice if you had some bicarb to maybe take care of some, what you're going to expect to be some acidosis fall and all that, but you might not have it. Uh, what are you going to do about it? The best you can. So that's really the big three considerations you got to plan and prep for mentally before you head out uh, on your calls and preferably before you get the call, you've really got to understand all of this before you head out. So the first one we're going to talk about is dehydration. This one, especially for Mike and I out here, East Coast, high humidity, high temps. People head out for a simple, what they think is going to be a couple hour day hike on a trail that, you know, if you're a good, healthy, truly fit hiker, moving quick and light, you can do in several hours. If you were the average tourist hiker, what you thought was going to be a two hour there and back trip is really more like a six hour there and back. And your one 16 ounce bottle of water is probably not going to get it done in July or August when it's ninety eight degrees and ninety eight percent humidity, All right? So we see de- dehydration. What's the easiest solution for dehydration? Hydration. Hydration. <laughs> and how do we and how do we hydrate patients in the woods, Mike? Well, it depends. Uh, if they're conscious and alert, I prefer the
1: uh, the fifty percent water, fifty percent Gatorade drink away and get to work. If they're severely dehydrated or they've quit sweating, this is usually when we're going to start a line and inject fluid directly. That's exactly it. i like to get some electrolytes on board with our, given the environment you just mentioned, August in the mid-Atlantic, just dumping a bunch of fluid into somebody that's already been dehydrated is not necessarily the best balancing act, so to speak. Rarely do we come across somebody that's so badly off that they're unconscious, but altered is not out of the realm of possibility. So I like to get fluid started, but I do like to get some electrolytes on board as well. One, it, it gives them a little sense of control over their environment and a little bit of an understanding that, you know, hey, if I'd maybe been drinking more, I wouldn't be in this state. And,
0: <laughs> yeah. and it's
1: uh, for those of us that do not have the ability nor, or the, the standing protocols to start a line and hang a bag, I, I'm a big advocate of cutting Gatorade with water. And administering that orally if they're able to swallow.
0: Yeah. And I'm um, with Mike 100%. The only where place I'm going to deviate really is the use of Gatorade, even cutting 50%. While you absolutely need to cut Gatorade in half, it's still, it's predominantly sugar, it still in, in the grand scheme of things, right? If you go back to, and Mike's certainly old enough, barely, to remember original Gatorade, and original Gatorade came in one flavor and it was gross <laughs> because it was, I mean, technically, those guys down in Florida at the university reverse engineered sweat and so they made sweat that had a slight lemon lime flavor to it um, which was great for athletic endeavors and rehydration but it didn't market and sell well so how in america do we make people buy we put sugar in it sugar right sugar or fat right so gatorade now has a lot of sugar they've been trying to make some new models to kind of go back to the original lineage and they're better but if gatorade is what you have which where we work, gatorade is provided that's what we've got so that's what we use a lot. We do, and we mix it, cut it to at least a 50 50 mix, uh, push it to people. And let's be honest if it tastes good, people will drink more of it as well. Um, but I also carry uh, the dehydrated mix of the your traditional oral rehydration salts that don't taste as good, but they have, you know, the. I, you always buy mine with the official World Health Organization recommended of mix of electrolytes. Just cuz if you're buying legit rehydration stuff, it's that's how it's going to be built anyway, predominantly. Yep. But I I agree with you, right? I don't love the sugar aspect to it. In a lot of cases,
1: at least in the environment we work in, it's not uncommon to start a line, give some fluid, patient says, "No, no, I want to wave." And by getting the the Gatorade drinking process started, they're continuing the hydration dance as opposed to just the fluid I provide and then they think they're they're a okay, and they're going to drive home. We that is we do story. have the unique opportunity or the unique unique capability, I guess. We can we have standing orders to to DC lines, so we can start a line, administer fluid, and then remove the catheter without having to go to the hospital or call for orders. So sometimes with dehydrated people, that's what you have to do. A lot of times they do not want to yep. get transported to the hospital, and at times we're in a pretty limited resource endeavor. And if they don't want to go, we're not going to you know fight them. So getting yeah. them to start drinking as well helps to balance that out over time.
0: Absolutely, and uh, again, I'm in 100% agreement with Mike. Step one should always be getting your patient to drink water or some sort of electrolyte mix long before you try to start an IV, right? If if they're conscious and alert, just have them do it the old fashioned way. You know, here's a bottle, drink, Mm -hmm. right? Get a couple bottles in them, see where they're at. And that's usually better than, you know, trying to do the magic of normal saline. A lot of visitors always like, oh, can I get an IV? No, drink this. Your body's still going to get the same fluids. We're just going to do it like this because not that I'm too terribly concerned about it. But if we're talking about patients in the backcountry, they're sweaty and they're generally going to be dirty. And while I clean the site, there's only so many alcohol prep pads I carry. And if I can reduce one more infection method on a patient, then let's, let's stick with that, right? You should, your go-to shouldn't just be like, stick them, get the IV and then hang fluids. Absolutely always an option, but I would prefer, and most people would that start them off if they're conscious and alert, have them drink now part of the problem is they don't have anything with them so now you have to bring extra and by the time you get to them you might not know it's a dehydration problem so you're already having to put a couple extra bottles in your bag which is just more weight you've got to carry and when you get to that patient their friends and family are also oh do you have any more i don't know how many times i've hiked in with a couple bottles for a patient my water and left with no water and i haven't had but maybe a sip
1: yeah i usually leave the backcountry dehydrated by the time we're done with the contact.
0: <laughs> yeah that's the way it works and, and, i mean yeah is that what should be going no. on no absolutely not. Um, um, it's bad for us as providers we shouldn't be doing that but um, you never have enough fluid if there's more than one person in the party Yeah, and that's exactly it right so so that's pretty much it for dehydration It's pretty much just as you would do anywhere else it, it's dehydration your patient needs fluids. You got a couple of methods to get it to them, use them. Uh, There is technically a third method, which we will not discuss on the podcast.
1: I mean, I know Um, how
0: to do it. You ever meet me and Mike? Not not me and Mike in a bar one day. (laughs) We'll we'll teach you. (laughs) We'll we'll talk about that one. We'll teach you the technique. Uh, So, next up, we're going to talk about altered mental status. Now, this can encompass many number of things. But we're going to focus on just a couple of the big ones, really some of the ones that are more predominantly seen in your common wilderness and austere settings. Now, this will vary depending on your environment, your local environment, the people you work with, the people you are out engaging with. Is this, are you in a national park? Are these, you know, visitors and tourists? Or are you supporting a, a remote offshore oil rig and you guys, you know, are having other issues? In that case, you're, you're going to have to be more aware of the common ailments that might affect people's mental status. Uh, so, first off, obviously, you got to, to get the assessment, and what's one of the number one tools that we use pre-hospitally as soon as we know somebody has an altered mental status? Uh, well, I mean... I go for glucose, but... Uh, hey, yeah. ding, ding, ding for the paramedic, hey. right? So rule out the easy win. Is it blood sugar, right? Are they having a hypoglycemic moment or a hyperglycemic? Hyperglycemia, much, much less an occurrence, especially in the back country, just because it takes so long for you to build up to a point where you're suddenly out of the game due to too much sugar. That's say It can't happen. Maybe this is when they hit that limit, but for the most part, you're looking at people at their low blood sugar. Are you going to know it's a low blood sugar? Your glucometer. Are you carrying a glucometer into the back? I know I do. I know Mike does. Do I know a lot of other providers who do not? Yes, I do. You'll meet some folks who are like, ah, you know, if they're altered and I get a history that says they're diabetic, then I'm going to get them sugar. Well, that doesn't mean that that's the problem today. So you're you're kind of, I will not say you're getting target fixated on that one, but you found a problem that has an easy solution that you're just going to stick with and run with. And this is definitely going to be one of those cases where if you don't get a confirmation through a glucometer, once you like, if you're carrying D10 in the woods and you give them a bag of that and there's no response, start thinking it's something else. I mean, honestly, glucometers are small and they're light
1: and are easy to carry. And I mean, it's, it's just another vital sign I collect on every single contact. I'm almost to the yep. point. I'm not going to say I'm to the point, but I'm almost to the point where yeah. if there's any sort of belief that there's any sort of alteration, like they're getting capnography right away too. Cause I want to see those numbers as well. Like it's almost, it's almost to the point where like I'm doing cap on almost everybody. So everybody's getting sugar. Like it's a simple procedure. It's a simple thing to do. Uh Just carry a glucometer, please, please carry a glucometer.
0: Yeah. And, you know, I mean, even if they're not altered, you know, when I get to those patients at the back country who are clearly having a bad thing and it's not an obvious trauma injury, I do. I'm just like front country. I'm going to get a glucose. Just, you know, it's a simple rule out and that is what it is. So let's talk hypoglycemic. So we pulled out our glucomer and you hit that thing and it's like 28. You're like, "Hmm, well, that explains that. (laughs) Big question is, do you carry D10 into the woods? I generally don't. It's not something we have a huge supply of for the folks we support. So what what do you do now? Couple of couple of techniques, and probably the simplest is traditional oral glucose. But you're doing this in a very very slow controlled manner. You're not just going to squirt a whole tube or pouch of, <laughs> of oral standard, love BLS rules into right? their you face. You just squirt the thing in their face. Yeah. You,
1: you, you. you coat the right. cheeks. You have them gum it again. Do, do not is, go squirting
0: glucose into their mouth if
1: they're altered. That's that's not the way to yeah, roll. Right.
0: So this might be one of those, yeah, you got to roll them on, you know, the left lateral recumbent and you're just squeezing in little bits at a time, watching their face hole, letting all the excess syrup drool out of their face if necessary. That might be the only way you're going to get sugar into them because you've got to get sugar into them eventually, right? We know that if they're that bad off, that they're down in that low range for that patient, whether it's 28 or 48, if they're altered and that's low for them, they need the glucose. Because things only get worse from there. Your brain has pretty much one food, it's sugar. And when it doesn't have that, it doesn't like you. So we got to get him some of that. The preferred method would clearly be establishment of an IV and something like D10. Uh, If you're still in the stone age and you use D50. I still use D50. um, Wow. And that's that's very disappointing to hear about. I I get whatever the hospital
1: provides us. Sometimes
0: it's D50, sometimes it's D10. Yeah. I, I haven't seen a no kidding amp of D50 since... Well, probably a false amp in paramedics. No, I just touched one this morning.
1: It expires in
0: 2024. No, see? Yeah, see? There you go. Right? Um, there are techniques to out there, and again, follow your local protocols and medical directions guidance about cutting your D50 down into a more palatable consistency and, and concentration. But that's really it, right? So just like front country, there's only a couple solutions for your hypoglycemics. If you're an ALS
1: provider and you have access to it, this is where in the back country,
0: you may have to flip the model
1: a little bit on the use of glucagon. If your patient is altered and you don't have the ability to give intravenous sugar, and they're unable to swallow. You may need to go with a glucagon attempt first to get any extra sugar stores available. But that may buy you the ability to alter their mental status to the point where they can begin to swallow and protect their airway. And now you can begin the oral sugar as well. Uh, just keep in mind that once you've gone down the glucagon route, you don't get to do that over and over and over. So yeah,
0: yeah, that's that's a one trick pony. If you yep. shot the yeah, you, you you shot that that round down range. Uh If it didn't work, well, another one is not going to make it's it's it work. Not going to make a difference. No. Yeah. So yeah, if you get them conscious enough, it's like cool. Hey, while you're awake, eat this now. Oh, is that one good? Good. Eat this one too. Uh, I mean, you got to get it going. And then once you maybe have them a little bit more stable, and then we, again, we go back to that traditional make them a sandwich model. Although I'm not carrying bread or peanut butter and jelly in my I backpack. Typically, have peanut so butter. Get, I just gonna jelly. I don't even do that. Well, that's not true. Sometimes I have those little packages yeah. of peanut butter. Uh, what you're gonna get is something like a trail mix okay. kind of thing. It's still a lot of simple carbs and sugars in there but you're going to get some other stuff going as well. It's going to help. It's not the ideal solution, but again, you know, I can't bring it all, so you're going to get what I have for my snacks. I will I
1: will mention for the record that a, a diabetic event, especially a diabetic event where I've been able to turn the corner on it and improve their blood sugar state. I'm not leaving that patient side until we get to a vehicle and there's a substantive amount of food available. Right? This is not one of those In the in the proverbial front country, uh, a lot of times you'll roll on a diabetic event. You'll come in and you'll treat the diabetic and they'll say, "I don't want to go to the hospital." And you say, "All right, so here. That modality may still apply, but that modality does not apply until we get to a vehicle with definitive food and a definitive treatment plan and a definitive care provider to get them to wherever they need to be to manage that diabetic event. Treating somebody in the woods and them saying, I feel better and then saying, all right, have a nice day. Enjoy your hike. Continue on. like That's probably not the (laughs) right path. You need to make sure you get them extricated because as all of us know, treating sugar, especially when there was a drop, you can get spikes, you can get swings. Uh, It sounds like their insulin levels aren't right. You need to maintain a relationship with that patient and, and treat them until you get them to a place yeah. where they can safely extricate out of that national park or the wilderness environment or wherever they are, if at all possible. Yeah. If
0: not, you're going to be going back for a trauma after they
1: face plant. So you might as well be with them when they- Yeah. Plant. I mean,
0: yeah. Exactly. Reduce yeah. the response Just time. Cut yeah. out a step. All right. Next up, stroke. This is one- that is an unfortunate circumstance should you have a stroke of any variety in an austere environment obviously the key is early recognition do your stroke assessment whatever your preferred assessment model is whether using any of the modified van or van scales cincinnati los angeles etc whatever you're using use it if you've identified a stroke well holy cow time is brain thing in the austere environment this is a bad news situation this is one of those times when you're really going to hope aviation assets are available, that you can get this person to a helicopter that can get flown to an appropriate treatment center as quickly as possible. Because let's be honest, if you have a stroke patient and there are no aviation assets, they're in a place they cannot be hoisted or the weather prevents any sort of helicopter operation, regardless of where you're at, and you've got to carry them out and you've got four, six, eight plus hours trying to get them out. It's it's obviously A very bad mix for that patient. They're going to have very, very poor neurological outcomes. I wouldn't even begin to guess on the mortality rate of of an incident like this. I think fortunately for both Mike and I, I don't know that we've ever run into a stroke in the actual backcountry. I treated one years ago when I was an EMT. Yes, yeah, so I, so I know we've run into a couple in the front country places where you know in campgrounds or lodges, and those are really handled traditionally the same way. For us, though, it's it's an immediate find the availability of the aviation assets because we're going to try to fly them as quickly as possible. Because even a ground transport to the local hospital is forty five minutes at the fastest, and this the local hospital is isn't a stroke capable hospital. So then they're getting transported out from there. So getting them on aircraft as soon as possible is it's is the best, the best choice. choice. So it, it's it's recognition and as quickly as possible evacuation. I mean, there's no other way around it. There's not much really to discuss with
1: this. Nope. One. Uh, the one thing I'll throw in there is if you're in a situation where you, if they're ambulatory and you're going to walk them and they can walk, which is potentially iffy with a stroke. This is where you have to make a value decision. The only thing that's going to fix a stroke is getting to a hospital that can fix the stroke. You have to make an assessment as to whether or not you're going to increase their blood pressure potentially by having them do some work to try to get out of the situation Or are you going to wait for evacuation? And this is where the time is brain math comes into play. So you really have to make that judgment call and make a decision based on what's best for the patient.
0: Yeah, spot on. So last little bit we're going to talk about under altermental stuff is drugs and alcohol. Folks do go to remote places to use drugs and drink a lot, whether it's just a recreational party around the campfire or some backcountry guys gathering mushrooms and getting high as hell. Uh, drugs and alcohol can be a problem for a lot of Oster providers. I've known a couple of guys who've worked offshore oil rigs and done work overseas in oil uh, oil plants and other places overseas and where, especially those places where it's really easy to get drugs, the employees they support, it's, it's always a concern and something they have to think about. If you think about like if you're on an offshore oil rig, And you're out there for 90 days on and 90 days off, depending on your rotation cycle. Those guys have figured out ways to smuggle drugs and alcohol like it's like it's prison, although probably much easier. So you're going to run into drugs and alcohol issues and being able to differentiate what's going on. Is this an accidental drug overdose? Maybe they had some pain meds. That they uh, took a couple too many of, or is this recreational drug use that's now got them altered? You know, are they just plain old drunk? And this is again, people who have low blood sugar are often mistaken for drunks. So being able to check blood sugars is important. In the back country, do you find guys who are drunk or high? Yes, you do. Yep. These guys aren't always the calls you get sent out to, but you never know. So something you just need to be aware of in the back of your mind. We do carry Mike and I. I know with us, we have Narcan. So if you got the opioid problem, I can fix that. I can give you some. Couple of doses. And let's be honest, I'm not, this isn't one of those urban pre hospital where I'm going to shoot you your Narcan, you're going to wake up and you're going to refuse, and I'm going to just let you sign and wave and send you on your way. It's just like the low blood sugar. I can't just leave you in the middle of nowhere where you're going to potentially relapse back into an overdose state with a negative yeah, outcome. Yeah, they're getting
1: carried. A lot of force probably getting involved. It's just kind of the way it's going to be. It's going to be a long day. Yeah,
0: it, it, it could be. And this is one of those, hopefully, you're not encountering folks that are getting super combative about it, but it's a consideration you to have especially for folks who are working in the standard recreational arena in the u.s people who go out on river rafting trips, guided fishing trips, hunting trips, visiting national parks, state parks, local parks, wherever you support your austere wilderness medicine, this is a potential thing you might encounter and being able to identify what the problem is. You might not know exactly what drug they took, but if you can identify that this is definitely a drug or alcohol related issue, that can help guide other stuff. And one of those resources, as Mike mentioned, might be law enforcement. While you're not necessarily there to get people in trouble, if that's what's needed to take care of them in a safe manner then that's what you got to do. So you got to think about that one.
1: It's probably worth note that uh, young 20-something males jumping off of cliffs and alcohol seem to go like hand in hand. And it's not completely uncommon to have traumatic events or events near waterfalls or near cliff faces where there's water below them that are uh, precipitated by or the decision to leap from a place was driven partially by the ingestion of alcohol. I've, I've seen it before, right? A couple of drunk kids. Next thing you know, Timmy dares Joe to do a thing and one guy jumps and it turns out it wasn't
0: quite as deep as they thought it was. Yeah, well, and it's funny you should mention that because uh, uh, my wife and I were actually hiking local park a couple months ago and we had stopped. We were just having a little break, talking, observing the scenery. And this group of hikers that we'd kind of been yo-yoing back and forth with stopped. And this older gentleman, probably in his forties, stopped, opened up his backpack because he had a very large external frame backpack on and everybody else really wasn't carrying much. And it was kind of like one of those, oh, you just kind of training. No, he had probably two cases of beer surrounded by ice inside his backpack that these two couples were hiking out and then we're going to one of the areas, it's got some waterfalls and it's just like, oh my goodness, you are the call waiting to happen <laughs> because these two 40 something males are going to drink a bunch of beer, maybe make a bad decision on one of these waterfalls. Or as we've seen plenty of people who've drank too much, your hand, eye, and more particularly in the back country- your foot eye coordination kind of goes out the window. You're going to stagger, you're going to stumble and you're going to fall and you're going to break something. So yeah, this happens and it happens probably more often than you realize. You just might not always get the call for it. All right. So those are, those are our big three. Um, uh, And one thing I was going to throw into this is just, we're going to discuss a couple of the the mnemonics that are out there for our providers. Everybody was taught. There's a mnemonic out there called A-E-I-O-U tips, and the tips is T-I-P-S, just like it sounds. Um, And that is supposed to remind you of the various things that can provide or cause an altered mental status. And I'm just going to run down a couple of highlighted points on this. We're not going to cover the entire list. So the A could be alcohol, acidosis, ammonia, or arrhythmias. e endocrine, electrolytes, encephalopathy, T, trauma, temperature, thiamine, S, stroke, seizures, syncope, space occupying lesions, and a shunt malfunction. So there's AIOU tips is found in most EMS textbooks. And it does, it provides you a general foundation or things to start considering when you have that altered patient and it's not readily apparent what the problem might be. I'm not a fan Sure, they made it not an acronym, but they made it a mnemonic that's fairly easy to remember. But the components of it are difficult to remember. In my days of teaching Wilderness First Aid, a company I used to teach with, Center for Wilderness Safety, I'll give them a shout out. Uh, They used a pretty simple mnemonic that we used to teach to Wilderness First Aid and Wilderness First Responder students. And it was Stop Eats. Stop as in like a stop sign and eats as in food, right? So this one is a lot simpler to remember. The S was for sugars, your diabetics, okay? Hyper hypoglycemics. Temperature, hypothermia, hyperthermia, right? The guys that are too hot and too cold. Oh, oxygen. Clearly one of the biggest causes of an altered mental state is a lack of oxygen to the brain. Pressure, and with this we're talking like intracranial pressure, so some sort of head injury. E, electricity. And in this we're really talking a bit more physiological, stroke, seizure kind of thing an electrical problem within the brain itself, or in a wilderness environment, was it perhaps a lightning strike? Something that's really an actual, no kidding, direct electrical current that could have done a little short circuit to the body. For us outdoors folks, altitude, right? So if you're operating, you know, out in the Rockies, the Sierras, or if you're overseas out in the big, big mountain ranges, think altitude. And part of that it goes back to oxygen as well uh, and tied also to your temperature. Cold, lack of oxygen up at altitude, all kind of combined create problems for a lot of folks. Uh, and the last one toxins. These can be medications, right? Your overdose, alcohol, any other drug use, ingested plants or foods. And Mike and I are going to have a case study uh, in the coming shows. I don't know when we're going to do that one. Talking about ingestion of plants while in a national park. Yeah, it's a common theme. It's a, It was a great call. It makes for a really good learning point. And it was a, actually fairly challenging. It was a good time. Now that we look back yeah. on it at the moment, it was a little bit stressful. <laughs> right. And the last one there is salt. And that really ties to your electrolyte imbalances again, dehydration, maybe hyponatremia, et cetera. So stop eats, it's uh, in my opinion, it's a much simpler mnemonic to use. I use it fairly regularly in my normal pre-hospital practice just to run through the potentials. You know, if you get on scene and you don't have that family member, they can say, oh, he's, he's a diabetic. I know he was having some issues. He felt like he wasn't, he was feeling like his sugar was getting low. And it's like, okay, well, I can at least start with that. Pull out the glucometer and see where we're at. If I come up on somebody and I have no idea while they're altered, these are the things I'm going to start running down to see if anything in there makes sense, and I can start working with that. Uh, and that's about it for our, our alternate mental status discussion. Mike, you got no, anything I else? I think that about covers it. Let's talk about the hard ones. <laughs> yeah. So go ahead and uh, lead us off on
1: some of the cardiac well, issues, Mike. <laughs> Unfortunately, cardiac related problems are going to be very difficult to treat in the backcountry. Quite frankly, if you're having a STEMI sort of event, the probability that somebody is going to come along in a timely manner with a cardiac monitor and strap a bunch of electrodes to your body and uh, take a picture and say, yep, that's some uh, ST elevation right there. And then be able to snap their fingers and make a helicopter appear out of thin air to fly you off to the nearest cath lab is simply, it's unlikely. What we're really doing for, for chest pain in the back country is palliative care. The, the first steps for any standard, I'll call it a standard chest pain, ACLS sort of contact, get the aspirin on board, monitor vitals, manage their pain if at all possible, you have the tools to do so. Do so. But now we're making a now we're making a judgment call. It's not uncommon. It, it's I shouldn't say it's not uncommon. It is uncommon. It's not impossible that somebody's going to bring a cardiac monitor down trail. For this sort of event, I've done it. Sean's watched me. I have carried a Life Pack 12 (laughs) down a trail. But the reality is that it's a bit of a cumbersome piece of equipment to bring into the backcountry for for any extended period of time or any extended distance. So you're probably not going to get cardiac monitoring if you are a paramedic. Uh, You're not going to get cardiac monitoring capabilities until you get them to a transport unit of some sort. So for for chest pain, right, you're going on signs and symptoms. This is straight up BLS chest pain diagnosis here. It was sudden. It's it's a sudden onset, it's a stabbing pain, it's radiating into my arm. All of the standard things you get taught in EMT school about chest pain and the over-under probability that it's a STEMI, it's probably a STEMI. Now you have a judgment call to make. Are we going to walk to get to the ambulance, to get to the helicopter, to get to the STEMI, or excuse me, to the uh, cath lab? Or are we going to wait, reduce the pressure and carry them out? I'm going to bias most of the time that if it, if it walks like a duck and talks like a duck, and it sounds like a a STEMI, and I don't have a cardiac monitor to do any more data collection, if you will. This is where I'm probably going to wait for a carryout team. Aggravating already inflamed and aggravated <laughs> cardiac tissue to try to get out of the woods, probably not the best call. So this is going to depend on your available resources and your. this is another one of those things. I feel like we say it a lot. This is a judgment call. Do I have the time to wait Are they having any trouble breathing? Are there any other complicating factors? Have they had any other problems? But kind of like just like with strokes, the only fix for a blockage in the heart, if it turns out it is actually a blockage in the heart, it's not an end or some sort of other event that you can't really diagnose in the field, is a cath lab. Definitive care. And the only way to get there, probably in a mechanized vehicle of some sort, and the only way to get to those is to get out of the woods. So unless you're lucky enough to be in a situation where you can hoist them right there from where they are, you're probably going to have to make a decision about whether or not uh, whether or not you're going to have to wait for a carryout team. And then how do you avoid having them rocking and rolling, bouncing down the trail while they're in pain? Uh, it's a tough one
0: to solve for, but unfortunately, it just yeah. kind of is what it is. Yeah, so I think Mike hit on one of the bigger points here, and that is if in your initial assessment, you're torn whether or not this is a cardiac, like some sort of blockage, right? An an MI of any flavor. If you think it is, then you're going to bias for action and you're going to assume worst case scenario and say, yep, this is most likely a heart attack and you have to treat it that way. The decision to like, let's see if we can walk for a bit. If this is a sick heart, and it's irritated already with a blockage. I mean, think about what we try to do in traditional pre-hospital medicine. We try to reduce the workload of the heart. Trying to get them to hike out of the backwoods is is not the way we do that. So this is definitely one of those times where it's like, hey, I've got to err on the side of caution. You're going to get a long, slow ride in a horizontal basket if you can get that helicopter. Absolutely, 100%. Uh, I know this is also one of those problem areas for certain backcountry providers. I know where Mike and I are at on occasion we encounter that person who's been in the trail for a while and they get to a certain point and it's like, you know what? My chest hurts. I don't want to do this anymore. Is your chest really, does your chest truly hurt? Are you actually having a cardiac issue or are you really just trying to get somebody to get you help? And when you get to people and you start talking to them and you, you might have a little of that spidey sense in the back of your brain that this guy or gal might not really be having a true cardiac event. They're just looking for a way to get off trail that doesn't involve walking five more miles back to their car. At that point, in, in mine, and I'm sure Mike's personal opinions is you get, still have to bias towards the fact that they are probably are actually having a cardiac event. If you're BSing me just trying to get a ride, well, A, there's no ride for me to get you. And I've known other providers who've had this situation and it's like, okay, we've got a helicopter coming. Well, I'm, I'm not getting in a helicopter. Well, there's two ways off the mountain you're getting in a helicopter or you're walking. You know, if you're telling me you're having chest pain and difficulty breathing, I have to assume you're having a heart attack. You're getting in the helicopter or you're walking. And if you suddenly tell me you're walking, I'm really going to start thinking you're faking it because people are having genuine heart attacks. You know, that whole impending sense of doom you read about in your textbooks. I've encountered that a lot on actual cardiac patients. You know, things like that are real. They don't feel good. They don't want to walk. They're like, "Yes, bring me that helicopter." I'm not saying it's like now challenge this guy. Well, I dare you to walk yeah, out.
1: Let's not do that because
0: now you're just like when you, when you have that you know that diabetic that you brought back around with some sugar. You're now going to have to follow this guy all the way back to his car just because you never know. You can't just like, "Yeah, you called for possible cardiac." I'm going to let you wave and see you. Good luck, Godspeed. It's probably not one of those people you want to do that with. I will say that. In the wilderness environment, I certainly see more people that have angina-type
1: symptoms. And it Mm -hmm. turns out it's actually a cardiac event. And it's not because it's not that angina is not a cardiac event. It's not uncommon for angina to be a, oh, yeah, dude had some chest pain in the front country. But a lot of times in the back country, that angina is actually an indicator that the extra stress that they've put on their cardiac tissue, because they are not typically hikers, but they're on a holiday weekend with the family. They're doing a 4th of July thing that they've not done before. Uh, Those oftentimes turn out to be actual STEMIs and they get a flight and they get a cath lab. So you should never be dismissive of chest pain. It's just the reality is that we don't have all the tools three, five, seven miles into the woods that we would in a front country environment. You know, I'm not carrying a cardiac monitor. I don't have my full suite of cardiac drugs with me if they go into a rest. It just is. And it's unfortunate and it stinks And it's not ideal, but until somebody makes a water bottle-sized defibrillator that also gives me... Well, they actually exist, but they're very, very expensive. Um, (laughs) Well, not defibrillators. The iPad cardiac monitor jammers out there, but there's no... There's no oh, pocket yeah. defibrillator that I know of. Unfortunately, if they do go into arrest, you got to do what you got to do. But uh, you're kind of resource constrained. The probability of a, of a positive outcome is going to be pretty slim.
0: Yeah. And, and Mike, that it brings up another solid point. And that is an actual cardiac arrest in the backcountry is treated in most wilderness or austere places, much like a traumatic arrest is treated in the front country, where you're going to get f- maybe 15 minutes of good solid BLS CPR if there's no ROSC. Well, there's no ROSC and it's pretty much called at that point. There's, yeah, there's no running a full ACLS algorithm in the backcountry. I don't know any backcountry providers who actually carry a full set of ACLS drugs, let alone, yeah, a monitor and a defibrillator. Even if you were carrying a simple AED with you, it's still what we'll call large and cumbersome and heavy, and it's just not something you're carrying out. No, and the
1: reality is, at least in some environments like, like ours, even if you get ROSC, you don't have this, the tools and the equipment available to provide palliative care for an extended period yeah. of time for ROSC, right? If you get ROSC and you're lucky enough to have a relatively stable patient, some sort of traumatic arrest or some sort of electrical-based arrest event where you can get them back quickly, you might be lucky. But the reality is most folks that even when you get ROSC, they're intubated, they're Potentially sedated. You're, you're running pressers. You're, you're trying oh, yeah. to keep all the things going until yeah. you can get them to definitive care. And we just don't have that tooling available. We have blades and, and tubes and stuff, but we don't carry them into the backcountry on a regular
0: basis. Right. Well, and, and here's something, right, that we didn't mention that kind of was in a roundabout way mentioned there. Unless I'm with you and I watched you go down or you had solid CPR trained people that were next to you and watched you go into cardiac arrest, your best case scenario for an actual provider to get to you is probably 30 plus minutes already. Yeah. If you were out hiking, you know, with the grandkids or you're a young adult male and you just didn't live a good lifestyle and you know when you're 45 and you go into cardiac arrest on the trail and nobody starts cpr on you immediately and keeps it up until essentially ems personnel get there you know you, you've got a huge downtime before anything happens you're pretty much just going to get it called there anyway we don't want to belabor Too much of that. There's, again, that's a local protocol. And yeah, follow your medical direction. Yeah, cardiac problems are always there on the side of caution and get them out. Next one, which kind of follows a similar mantra difficulty breathing. This is one where you've got to sit there and get a hold of your patients and talk to them. And is there trouble breathing? It's because they've never exerted themselves by hiking uphill before. Or is there something else going on that's actually, you know, a pulmonary kind of issue you need to be worried about? Again, this is something that you're going to have limited ability to treat. I don't carry. An oxygen cylinder with me to do a neb and give you some albuterol it's just not going to happen some places are down with carbon fiber tanks and carrying them around we currently are not and i still don't even know if i would take one just because the limited use case for them uh, it's, i'm only going to get you a little bit anyway and if that one breathing treatment didn't get it i'm probably going to be out of oxygen to keep it up anyhow biggest one is you're just going to have to try and coach your patients through the problem and if it's a significant problem, then again, you're looking at trying to do as rapid as you can, given your situation, extraction out of the environment and into a hospital.
1: Yep. This is where, well, on the plus side, if this is just an uh, exercise-induced sort of trouble breathing, i.e. they're uh, they're not in the best physical condition, and it turns out hiking uphill was not in their cards today, by the time you get to them, they're usually recovered. Because it turns out if you stop hiking uphill, you'll usually recover pretty quick. Where this gets, call it dicey, if you have patients with a PE, you have patients with... Uh, pre-existing medical conditions or or some sort of known condition. Maybe they're hitting their albuterol inhaler. It's just not quite working. If you know the extenuating circumstances before you head in, this might be a time when you decide to carry oxygen. But in general, I don't know a lot of crews that are carrying multiple tanks of oxygen into the backcountry multiple miles. Again, this may be an Aravac situation, or it may be a slow methodical. Right? I, I do know trouble breathing. I, I've treated trouble breathing events. We've just taken a slow, slow walk out of the woods at the rate that they could go. And we got them to an ambulance and got them to definitive care. But generally, this kind of falls in line with cardiac problems, uh, unless it's a thing that that's something like an albuterol inhaler can help with. Get some bronchial dilation if you have epi, and you can help with that if it's an allergic reaction of such, and we're, we're going to talk about those separately. If it is a sudden onset trouble breathing that's it's not of known origin, this can be a very difficult thing to treat in the backcountry.
0: All right. So next one we're going to talk about is abdominal pain. This again gets into that tricky area. I honestly, there's there's not much difference uh, wilderness wise, vice front country. We still don't have imaging available to us. There are nice handheld, small, portable ultrasound devices that are out there now that you could use for fast type scans uh, for the abdomen. But really, this comes down to a good history and physical exam. Is this acute? Is it because of something they possibly ingested? Did that mushroom on the side of the trail, did they think they knew what it was and it really wasn't? Uh, they just ill, you know, did they drink unfiltered water, which for those of us that work in the, the wilderness mountain environments, the unfiltered water is a big one for abdominal pain. Or is this a, a young female, not necessarily young, I guess, but of still childbearing age. And are we now concerned about like the ectopic pres- pregnancy or something to that effect? This is again where you're going to want to bias towards uh, the worst case scenario and not just blow this off just because your your time to get them out can be extended. This Unlike your cardiac issue, if you're having some pretty bad abdominal pain, maybe I can give you some analgesia to kind of relieve that, take the edge off a bit, and then we're going to try and have you walk. And we're going to try and have you walk as quickly as we can. If you're carrying a pack or something like that that's got some weight that might be slowing your patient down feel free to pass that off to somebody else. You might need to carry it just so they can step it out and get down trail faster. Uh, because again, if we have to stop, wait for that rescue team to come on up and, and fly them or to carry them, it's just going to delay that whole process. So again, abdominal pain is a little bit tricky. And this is one where really a physical exam and a really, really solid patient history is most important. I tend to agree. Abdominal pain
1: is uh, abdominal pain. And that's that. Nothing really changes as far as the investigative modality, if you will, but at the end of the day, the only way to know what's going on abdominally is to get you to a place that has the tools to take a peek, and we don't have them, so we got to get you there.
0: Yeah, and like I said, unless you can 100% rule out the worst case scenario, then you got to treat it as such. All right, so that brings us up into another very, well, I won't say it's, and actually it's not a very specific uh, wilderness problem, and that's environmental exposure, right? Both heat and cold. Just like you were taught in EMT or paramedic or wellness first aid, the number one thing you got to do is get them out of that affecting environment, right? So if it's a heat problem, you've got to get them out of the heat. If it's a cold problem, you've got to get them out of the cold. Heat injuries are something that we definitely encounter on a fairly regular basis. Not a It isn't weekly, but it it happens. We're very aware of it, and it's something we're pretty familiar with in treating. The biggest piece with heat, and this is a tricky one for backcountry stuff, is, is getting a temperature. Sean's personal opinion, I don't need a thermometer and a temperature to tell me exactly where your core temp's at. If you are in a hot environment and you're displaying any of those signs and symptoms that could be related to heat exhaustion and especially heat stroke, I'm going to assume it's heat stroke, and we're going to start treating for it as such. Now, remember, if... If it is a heat stroke piece and you're really thinking that's where you're at, this is definitely one where they are no longer walking because we don't want them to generate any more body heat. They're getting carried. They're getting cooled down with whatever you've got. Fortunately, in the mountains, there's a lot of cold water available, depending where you're at. If you're near one of those, man, I know we have laid people in streams, let the cold water flow over them for a bit. You do have to be very cautious of cooling too fast, but it is perhaps something available to you that you might need to consider. But the biggest one is getting them out of that environment, trying to get them in the shade and cool them down as quickly as you can. Cold is where most people find their issues because they kind of forget how cold it can be if you are injured or ill and how much faster you lose your body heat and how much colder you get when your body isn't functioning properly. I mean, if you think about what used to be the old lethal trauma triad, hypothermia was a big piece of that. Even though the triangle is expanded to a rhombus, hypothermia is still in there and it's a significant concern. Something I always used to preach to my wellness first aid students is the ground is always cold. Just because it's August and you're in a hot environment now, I will say if you're in you know, the Grand Canyon or Death Valley in August, and you're laying your patient on the exposed ground, yeah, that's going to be hot. But you're going to have to take the opposite thing and still put them on some sort of insulating layer just to keep them off those, you know, truly 100 some degree rocks because you want to cause burns. But even in the moderate summer weather, we're in the the midst of summer out here with Mike and I, the mid-Atlantic, 90 some degree days, if you're not feeling well and you're just laying on the ground, injured or ill, you are going to cool down. There's a lot of literature out there, uh, depending on which textbook you read, how fast like cold wet ground is going to suck heat out of you, you know, just like water loss, etc. Don't need to worry about specifics like, oh, but they're only losing so many degrees per hour or this is rate is this. It doesn't matter. The ground is always cold. Insulate your patients from the environment, right? Especially when it's cold get them up off the ground, make them comfortable, keep them heated. Like I said, there's not much that can be done for heat exposure except try to cool them as best you can and get your evacuations moving. On the cold side, because they're already cold, you're trying to prevent further heat loss and that puts you down at two options active or passive rewarming. Passive rewarming is great if your patient still has the ability to make and generate heat. And that's a tricky one, right? You have to understand how these two processes work and which one you need to go with. If you're just assuming that, hey, I threw a space blanket on them, they're great, but they're not making heat to keep under the space blanket and trap and insulate around them. Your space blanket is just a lot of crinkly loud mylar. It's it's not doing anything for your patient right? You're going to have to think active warming measures.
1: I'm a big fan of the blankets with the built-in heat packs, chem packs, but those can be a little spendy. You just have to keep in mind that, that with cold patients, especially patients that have been cold for a while, if they're not generating heat throwing, I mean, I'm not saying don't do it, but wrapping them up in a bunch of warming material without any sort of active warming is going to be of limited success. I'm not going to say it's not going to help. The big things at that point are getting them out of the wind, getting them out of the environment, Uh, If they're wet, getting them dry. But if they're really, really down the rabbit hole and they're not generating a whole lot of heat, you're going to have to activate some sort of acting warming process. And this is where the the storybook backcountry rescue scenario comes into play.
0: You may need to build a fire and produce heat. That's right. Or go old school and we're all going to get naked and get in the same sleeping bag together. Yeah. Yeah. And Mike will be your active warming (laughs) source. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, you know, only for you, buddy. Only for you. See, that's that's what friends are for. Uh, On a side note related to that. Can you use person-to-person contact for to assist with some active reward? You can. Yes. It works. Um, getting the whole skin-to-skin piece, not necessarily. What they have found in some studies is the cold person makes the other warm person cold, and then you potentially end up with two cold patients. But as Mike mentioned before, if your cold-weather patient is wet, you have to get the wet clothing off of them, right? You've got to get them dry. Cold and wet, eh, well, back in my youth, we used to... It was kind of a, I don't know, way of getting through the bullshit we had to deal with sometimes. And it was like, being cold is one thing, but being cold and wet, well, that was two things. And once you hit two things, that was just too, too many, right? So you can stand being cold and you can stand being wet. But if you're cold and wet, that's a very bad combination. So if you've got a patient and you're worried about a cold weather injuries, you've got to get them dry. Uh, And that could be, honestly, in the backcountry even, basically getting your patient naked and sliding them into a sleeping bag, utilizing some of those other active warming methods. Uh, Like Mike talked about, we do love those blankets that have got the built-in little heat cells in them. Fantastic. Tuck that around the torso, shove it all in there with them. And I will say, just as a reminder, do keep in mind a little bit of patient modesty. There is a need to get them treated and start getting them warm, but you don't necessarily want your patient laying buck naked in the middle of the trail while you get all this figured out. Do think about that. Um, I, I shouldn't have to say, but I, I've seen it happen on more than one occasion, both front country and back country. It's just something you got to think about. All right. So that's really not going to get deep into our, our environmental exposures. It's just, you need to remember the core treatment modalities, right? If they're hot, you got to cool them. If they're cold, you got to warm them up. And on both cases, you have to get them out of that environment. You have to think through the process. And if you know it's the winter months, wherever you work, you know you're going to need extra warming layers. Mike and I definitely pack lots of warming layers because we've been stuck in cold places for extended periods of time. And sometimes your extra fleece jacket ends up on top of your patient just because they need it. Or it goes to the patient's girlfriend or boyfriend or whatever just because now they're stuck and they're not moving and they're getting cold too. Don't think about just hey, I've got my stuff in my bag and let's do this. You got to think about your environment at the time of year and things you might expect to see and you got to plan for. So next on the list, anaphylaxis. This one is pretty straightforward. I would say there should be zero difference, but that is predicated on where you work and what your protocols are and what your provider level is. In the wilderness, in the backcountry environment, a big one is bee stings. People don't know they're allergic to bees until they've been stung by one or maybe they were stung by one once and they had a small minor reaction, but nothing significant. And the next time they get stung by one, it's like, oh, wow, this is really, really bad. Yeah, this isn't as minor as the last one. And so this brings us back into that trouble breathing piece. This is an emergency. Unless they know they're allergic to something and they are smart enough to be carrying their EpiPen, this could be a very, very, very critical patient by the time you get to them. And you need to know exactly what you need to do. And do it as soon as you get on scene number one should most certainly be the administration of epinephrine and then after that then we can start thinking about you know diphenhydramine or something else to help with the you know the histamine problem and and the actual allergic reaction but this is a time sensitive piece in the back country this can be much more fatal than it is in the front country or urban scenario so if you're thinking this might be an anaphylactic type reaction you've got to be able as a provider to move and get there as quickly as possible And hopefully you get there in time and you know exactly what your treatment protocols are and you can do your work. If not, then you start finding yourself in that respiratory arrest, cardiac arrest situation. Um, This is
1: kind of not all that well known. Pepsid, because it's an H2 receptor antagonist, can actually help with some allergic reactions. It's actually pretty commonly used in the hospital as an adjunct. It's not the primary path, uh, but it is an H2 blocker. So if you have Pepsid available, that is a good first step if nobody's, if you don't have anything else with you and it's within your scope and you're allowed to give OTCs to patients. But unfortunately for any major anaphylactic event, your best course of action is to treat with epinephrine and then get the Benadryl and the cymedrils or the steroids on board and get them to a hospital. The reality is that once you've started the course of treatment, there isn't a whole lot more to be done, but you do not want recurrent allergic reactions in the backcountry that you're managing for an extended period of time. They need to be extricated. If there's any sort of trouble breathing whatsoever, they need to go to a hospital. They need to get uh, aggressive treatment before you end up in a situation where there is airway compromise.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's exactly it. You, know, you got to keep in mind the biphasic nature of anaphylaxis that you got it now, but that doesn't mean it's not going to come back in 30 minutes, hour, two hours, four hours later. And when somebody's in the backcountry in that instrument environment, that time piece actually plays a part. And this might be another one of those patients that you're you're staying with until you can turn them over to somebody else. Oh, absolutely. I think I think the big key for backcountry is because of the distance and the
1: time, you know, sometimes we get lackadaisical a little bit. Uh, well, they're not having trouble breathing, so it's not a problem. That just means they're not having trouble breathing right now. Some allergic reactions can take a while or can slowly progress. Or in some cases, it's treated as not that big of a deal now. Elevated effort, when they start hiking again, become the problem. So this is not a patient that you treat real quick, let them wave, say bye-bye. Uh, they need Benadryl. They need monitoring. They need to be watched until uh, until it's determined whether it's going to be recurrent. And then at that
0: point, they can head on home. Yeah, that's very good points. All right. One of our last topics, and this one, we're definitely not going to go down the rabbit hole on this. Metabolic disorders. Rhabdomyolysis, depending on what you're doing, where you're at. If you've got, especially folks that like to push themselves physically, uh, I know where Mike and I are at, we have some folks that are like speed hikers, you know, long distance trail runners come and train. They have bicyclists that come and train in our particular area uh, preparing for major races just because of the hills and some of the difficulty of cycling through the the area. This is something you could see. We may or may not have had a case uh, in the backcountry before with this, you know, because we didn't have like an EPOC or an ISTAT, we can't confirm whether individual had rhabdo or not. But he said he did. He was a doctor. He said he did. and He was a doctor, so we, we took <laughs> we kind of took, <laughs> took him, him at his word. word. Yeah, uh, but based on you know his other presentations, we we treated appropriately, and it is what it is. But it's something you should you know at least be familiar with, understand what some of the signs and symptoms could be. This is one of those things. There's no black and white pre-hospital way to tell. This really needs lab testing to confirm that it truly is rabdo. So you to do again this is a big patient history piece combined with your actual physical assessment and then it's really only a this could be one of the things that's causing the problem it could be something else but you need to keep in the back of your mind that this could be one of the things and rhabdo is a pretty serious condition so if you're not sure Keep that at the top of your list as one of your maybe primary top three diagnoses for a patient, just so you're not totally neglecting it. But there's very little you can do pre-hospitally, especially in the austere environment for it. Regardless. I don't remember a whole lot of teaching in paramedic school about going in depth on
1: rhabdo, other than this is rhabdo. It's not the best. The reality is this is where critical care skill set, a little bit of that nursing skill set may come into play depending on how long you're with them, measuring ins and outs, looking at the color of the urine, et cetera, et cetera. But at the end of the day. The only way you're going to have a definitive diagnosis of problem X is going to be
0: a lab test. Get a line started, get some fluid on board,
1: and get them to a hospital. That's basically all you can do. Yeah,
0: And then the next one, another one of the more common ones, is going to be hyponatremia. So this, these are the folks that are the opposite of most of your people that we see, the casual hikers. These are the folks that are over-hydrating. They're flushing their system. They're pushing all the electrolytes out because they're drinking so much water. And this diagnosis really needs to come from solid patient history. You know, how much have you been drinking? You know, what size water? bottle? How many of those have you had? How often are you urinating? If they're stopping to pee every 15, 20 minutes, and it's been clear all day long and they're chugging water and they have not replaced any of those electrolytes with sports drinks like Gatorade or eating you know, good salty trail mix which is why back in the day trail mix was the thing to drink or not drink but eat Mm -hmm. as you're hiking right? Mm -hmm. It was replacing salts and sugars and miscellaneous things into your system as you were sweating them out. So this is a big piece and what a lot of people make the mistake with is you get to a point where it's hyponatremia so it's like oh you've lost all your sodium so everybody wants to jump right on the bandwagon of like oh well I've got a, a thousand ml bag of sodium right here and that is not always the answer. It really depends on where on that spectrum the individual patient is. Could end up doing them more harm than good by pushing even what you think is going to be the right thing with salt water. So this is certainly a case where you need to if you have it available, consult medical control. If not, you know, you might definitely want to bias towards hey, we're going to give you some water to sip. But make it one of those, if you've got oral rehydration salts or or Gatorade, we're going to sip this and we're going to do it slowly over time because we don't want to just continue to fluid overload them and prevent those electrolytes you're trying to give them from staying in the system. They're going to try and leave. And this can be a significant problem. This is one I was first made aware of as an instructor many years ago. We had started having some students coming down with this. And some will call them sister instructors of the course that was next to us. was like, oh no, this is what their problem is. We're like, what? What do you mean? You can't drink too much water. How is that possible? And then you start doing the research and you're like, oh, holy crap, you can drink too much water. So it's something you need to be aware of if you're working in one of those hot environments and you have people who are trying to stay ahead of that hydration curve, they could get too far ahead of it and that can cause a problem.
1: I've seen it a few times where we run around or what I believe was hyponatremia. The reality is this comes full circle to what was mentioned in the beginning. You have to understand the positive physiology and, and we can go down a deep, dark rabbit hole that I don't think is necessary at this Particular juncture, but you can have uh, you can have concentrate urine. You can have medication concentrations. You can have medication complications that they were unaware of. Like, oh no, you know, I I just take such and such, or I'm on a Lasik for a different problem. But that that pill, I can't remember how many times I've heard this phrase. That pill treats my problem. I don't have that medical problem anymore because I take the medication for it. Right? I don't have AFib because I take my Metropolols, so I don't have AFib. It's gone now. But there are a lot of different contributing medications, especially for folks that are uh, that are worried about hydration. They're not super super fit athletes but they're out here doing a thing with the family or they're out here doing an adventure and they're trying to stay ahead of the dehydration curve because they've heard that it's a bad thing. I don't know how much further we want to go down that rabbit hole, but once you've seen it, it's not impossible to recognize, but it's something that is not super common. And we don't, honestly, we don't see a whole lot of it in the front country.
0: No, no, definitely not. This is one where if you're covering races, like if you're providing medical coverage at a marathon or other endurance races, this is where you're going to see a lot of this. But yeah, I, I think you're right. We These two topics, rhabdo and hyponatremia, it's, we're just kind of touching on them as just, these are metabolic disorders that are not common that you could run into out there in the back country with your various clientele that you see. So just something to be aware of. If you're not super knowledgeable in either subject, brush up on it. Last one we're going to cover, and this is really super basic, and that's just your general illnesses. Those folks who just don't feel good. And a lot of times you don't always get these calls on the trail. This is the ones where you end up in a campground somewhere. Or maybe if, you, if you're if you working somewhere that has like lodges or little huts or something, folks just don't feel right. And so they call you. Just like uh, when we're on our urban ambulances and you get that 4 a.m. call because, well, my nose is running. I just don't feel so good. And I waited till 4 a.m. to call you. And I say, well, I appreciate that, ma'am. Would you like to go to the hospital today? And off we go. So you just need to be aware. Cold and flu season. And of course, it's the era of COVID. So that's something you need to keep in mind as well. These are illnesses that are out there. They occur all the time. And you'd be able to do a differential diagnosis with some of these things to just make sure it's not something more significant is it the flu and or the common cold maybe even covid or are they having something more significant like are we on the edge of a a viral pneumonia or something like that that Now we're getting fluid in the lungs and it's becoming a much more serious issue instead of just some belly pain, some diarrhea, some vomiting kind of stuff. So just be aware of it. Uh, Understand what treatments you can provide, if any. This is one of those areas that I'm probably really not gonna try to provide a whole lot of treatment. I mean, really it's, okay, I, I could give you some fluids if you've been having a lot of diarrhea and vomiting, but I'm also just gonna tell you drink some water and quit drinking beer. Try to clean up your diet a little bit as best you can while you're out here camping or whatever it might be. General wellness stuff. Maybe, hey, here's a couple of Motrin some Tylenol, whatever it might be, there's really not much you can do. You just something to be aware of that these are still out there, even, you know, in the remote and austere environments. The reality is the majority of those patients we contact, we get told, no, no, I don't want to. I just
1: thought you'd make me feel better. General illness is everywhere. You just got to treat general illness. It ultimately always results in a conversation of, well, would you like a ride to the hospital or not? And the minute they say, no, you say, have a nice day
0: you know, stay warm. Mike and I run into people with minor boo-boos that are like, why, why did you call me for a Band-Aid? You, you just wanted comfort. No, I don't carry cough syrup. I'm sorry. You'll have to go to the local camp store or go home. I don't know. So sometimes you get those calls for, they, they want you to give them something. And it's not really they want an ambulance to go anywhere. They just want you to they want you to give them the band aids or they want you to give them some cough syrup or something. So something to keep in the back of your mind. Those things are out there, and you never know we you're going to run them. Ironically,
1: when you're in the woods, there's no CVS down the street, so you tend to be the next the next person they call. All right, Sean. With that, uh, you want to wrap us up?
0: Yeah. So again, these are just some of the highlights for your standard. Well, we'll not call them standard, but some of your more common medical emergencies in the backcountry. Some treatment considerations. Again, we're not going to tell you how to treat your patients. We're not going to get you a list of protocols and tell you med dosing, right? That's not really our gig here. We're just opening up the conversation, give you some ideas and things to think about, do some additional study on. God, I'll get cliched here, but the military, they're medics, right? They're, one of their new slogans is knowledge weighs nothing in a ruck, which you need to kind of take to heart in this environment. The more you know, it doesn't cost me, well, it costs me, right? Mm-hmm. The courses I take cost money, but having that knowledge in my head, it doesn't weigh my pack down. It doesn't cause me any extra strain to move it up and down the mountain but the more knowledge I have on pathophysiology and the drugs I use all the other things we've talked about just make me a better provider and help me provide better care for patients in austere settings. You know you need to be able to think through your problems and the more you know, the better off you are. Know your assessment skills. If you don't know how to take manual blood pressure anymore or you're not good at listening to lung sounds, doing solid physical exams, like the last time you did a good trauma exam was for the National Registry, you should maybe pick up on that and start practicing some more because doing these solid assessments really makes or breaks a lot of these calls in the backcountry. The back big country. ones, blood pressures.
1: A lot of systems now have automatic blood pressure cuffs. We don't carry those in the backcountry, so you have to be able to auscultate a blood pressure. Keep in mind that when when you're auscultating a blood pressure, if it's you doing it, you should be the one taking the blood pressure every time. It's your set of ears, your set of your physical ears, your stethoscope ears, and that same cuff, getting the, the blood pressure for a good trend.
0: All right, Sean. Well, why don't you bring the closer, brother? All right, folks. All right. And, you know, we're here for you. Send us your stuff. And uh, until we see you on the mountain, train hard, be safe, and do good work. If you have any questions
1: or comments or ideas for show topics, you can send us an email at the show at emsonthemountain.com or hit us up on social media. We can be found on Facebook and Instagram at EMS on the mountain, Twitter at EMS or you can engage with us and a whole community of wilderness EMS professionals at locals.com slash wilderness
0: EMS. Until the next episode, thanks for joining us. And until we see you on the mountain, train hard, be safe, and do good work.